Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. As I was saying before, I mean, for years we would do, we do five shows a week and, you know, we plan them all. And for years we would do the Monday show the way we did the other shows, which is to say plan it well in advance. And, you know, I don't know what, three years ago, maybe four years ago, we kind of decided that maybe when we come in on Monday, we've got a whole bunch of new things we're interested in. We should be ready to talk about those and essentially not have a plan. I don't think we quite understood how eventful weekends were going to become and eventful in lots of ways that we're not necessarily happy about. But here in the era of Trump, both the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency, uh, things seem to happen faster and more, and in more extreme and dire ways. And, and not only are we full of things that we want to do on Mondays, we often have barely managed to process the pig and the python that we've been moving through our system all weekend. So today, yes, there's an awful lot to talk about. Uh, there's an awful lot to talk about vis-a-vis London and also the president's uh, response via Twitter uh, to London. Uh, there's also still being digested in the python, uh, the withdrawal from the Paris Accords. And uh, in our second segment today, we're going to specifically talk about ways in which states and municipalities are stepping forward and saying here in America, well, you you know, we don't necessarily agree uh, about pulling out of the climate accords. We're prepared to step up and uh, and contribute our own bespoke ver- versions of, of the climate accords. Uh, we'll talk to journalist David Abel about that. And then in the final segment today, I, we fought off a lot of really good guest ideas because I wanted to keep some time open just for you to call in. I know you have things that you want to get off your chest. So in the final segment today, we will make the phone lines available to you. Here in the first segment, we're very excited to have uh, Yasha Munk, uh, who lectures on government at Harvard, a senior fellow at uh, New America and host through New America of The Good Fight, a fairly new podcast that really uh, contributes a lot uh, of insight with uh, fairly in-depth conversations with big thinkers uh, uh, about issues related to some of the stuff that we're dealing with right now. He also writes a column for Slate. He's been with us once before. Yasha, do you want your your own personal walk-up music? Should we play that for you? Uh, Please go ahead. All right, here we go. Boom. All right, see if Mike Pesca does that for you. Uh, <laughs> so um, now, now, now I feel like I have to uh, quiz you about populism. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah, so, yeah, you're the guest, not the host this time. It's important to know uh, our respective roles. So I want to begin, Yasha. I know you're in London right now. Um, I want to begin. Uh, we'll, I do have some questions about President Trump's uh, response, but I think we should start uh, on, on the home soil there. And, and maybe... You could say a little bit about Theresa May's response. She's in an odd position right now because some of what she says will exist within the continuum of an election. And there may be some posturing that she finds necessary to do. Some things may be uh, uh, her seizing an opportunity to talk about things in a way that she might have wanted to talk about them before. I'm thinking specifically about uh, proposing or at least trial ballooning uh, things like restrictions on the Internet. So... um, um, as you watch Theresa May respond to, to the events 
uh, of London. What are you seeing there? Yeah, she's in a really complicated position. I mean, the first thing to say is that she was what's called Home Secretary in the United Kingdom, so sort of the Minister of the Interior for uh, six years um, until she became Prime Minister. So she was actually responsible for um, leading the counter-terrorist effort within the United Kingdom. Um, and so uh, these attacks, on the one hand, play to her strengths politically. They show um, that that somebody who has that expertise, who has that experience, might be the right person to be leading the country at the moment when these ongoing terrorist attacks have happened three times in the last three months. But on the other side, of course, uh, she will perceive a danger that voters will blame her for these attacks. Um, she uh, has uh, allegedly cut the funding for a lot of frontline police officers um, over the last years. That is what the opposition is saying. Um, and so there's a real danger that people will say, actually, it is the prime minister's fault in part um, that these terror attacks have occurred. So uh, after the attack happened on late on Saturday night here, local time in London, um, the parties agreed to sort of suspend campaigning for a couple of days, and Theresa May, in her capacity as prime minister, came out to make a statement, which is the normal thing you would do under that kind of circumstance. Um, but because it's so close to the election, which is happening this Thursday, um, it was perceived by many people as a campaign speech under another name, under this sort of mantle of uh, the statesman-like appearance of a prime minister. And so, uh, so so it's a very complicated position for her, and it's a volatile, very volatile political situation as well. She she did talk about how a, a lot of the, uh, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but a, a, lot, a, a lot of the acculturation of terror and terrorism happens on the Internet. Of course, that's a little bit like a fish saying a lot of these things are happening in water. Everything happens on the Internet these days. But she's used this as an opportunity to say, you know, we really have to take a second look at this. There's And, and even since she said that, there's even some suggestion that something is, as, you know, anodyne as a YouTube video may have played some role in kind of... Uh, uh, yeah, know, kind of open source terrorism here. So how does that, I think I know how it would fly in the United States. I might be wrong. How does it fly in the United Kingdom? Well, I don't know how it would fly in the United States. You know, <laughs> okay. I, mean, I mean, obviously the, 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 the idea of the state censoring in a straightforward way what can be done on social media networks would be unacceptable in the United States. Um, and it's not straightforwardly done in the United Kingdom either. Um, but I think the pressure on Facebook and Twitter to monitor the efforts at recruitment that jihadis are carrying out on those networks has been steadily building in North America and in Western Europe, as we've seen the degree to which these platforms do play a role in allowing the spread of this radical Islamist ideology. Um, so so, so I think actually voters are quite receptive to that in the United Kingdom. I think they are seeing that something will have to change. And frankly, I think the most likely outcome in most countries is going to be a lot more self-governance and a lot more taking seriously of this problem by the leaders of big Silicon Valley companies because they will recognize that po political tide is turning against them and that for the first time in their existence, they are really in danger of becoming a, a target of populist anger unless they step up the game and um, help in the prevention of uh, some of this radicalization. Right. It's sort of like if you're in Silicon Valley, you want to make rules before somebody else makes them 
for you. Um, you've written also a little bit about the n- normalization, if that can even ever be a, a right word, of, of uh, terrorism in, in the United Kingdom. Not the first time England has gone through something like this. And uh, uh, there's certainly during the time that are uh, known as the Troubles, uh, there were a, a lot of Irish-related bombs going off around the country. Um, but there's been, uh, you know, now quite a heavily concentrated set of terrorist incidents. And so what do you see happening there? Yeah, so so I was really struck by this on Saturday night. I was in London. I had gone to a comedy show early in the night, and at the beginning of the show, the comedian Andy Zoltzman uh, had brought out a laptop on stage and said, you know, these days um, I feel like I've got to bring out a laptop on stage um, when I make political comedy because who knows what's going to happen while I'm on stage. Um, and then a couple of hours later, as we were leaving the theater, somebody uh, came up to me and a friend and said, um, have you heard what just happened? And we sort of looked confused. And we said, well, there seems to be some kind of attack going on at London Bridge. Um, so, so there was a poignant irony there. But but as I was walking uh, home from the theater, you know, I expected a somber mood. I expected um, uh, people to be quite concerned about the potential that um, some form of terrorist activity could be happening around us as well. I mean, the attacks had been only about two miles away in a different part of central London. Um, and instead, it sort of the, the scene I saw was exactly what you would see on an average Friday or Saturday night on an English high street, which is to say, you know, people being very drunk and very merry. Um, and and I did, we didn't quite know what to make of that. I mean, you know, there was something strange and distasteful about people celebrating and having a good time with no apparent fear. Uh, you know, at the same time as other people had been murdered not far away. Um, And there was also something sort of beautifully resilient about it, but people clearly had thought, you know what, Um, I'm not going to cut my evening short, I'm going to stay out. Um, It's my right to to enjoy myself and have a good time, and, and we shouldn't let you know, as as the cliched statement goes, the terrorists win. Um, so I was just struck by the degree to which the terrorist attacks seem to have been normalized. I was in Boston three years ago at the time of the um, marathon bombing um, when the whole city was shut down and people were asked to shelter in place. And I was, you know, stayed indoors in my apartment for, you know, 24 hours. Um, and this just felt so completely different. The next day, you, you walking around London, you wouldn't have noticed that there was a real attack the day before. Um, and so I'm still processing and figuring out what to make of that. Um, because I think there's, there's good sides to that, but there's also a very sad side to it. Right. And I, one thing that I would say is, is that, I mean, having lived through 9-11 journalistically and then lived uh, through the Sandy Hook shooting here in Connecticut as a journalist, Mm -hmm. you often don't know what you're internalizing in terms of the the shock. Uh, you, You may feel as though you can achieve some kind of professional distance from it or, or just human distance from it. And, and then I, because I remember on the day of the Boston bombings, having it, it, really in the first four or five minutes of having to leap into coverage of this, a sudden kind of a panic attack that wasn't necessarily related to the Bo- Boston bombings. That was the accretion of this stuff. You know, it was like I really had this moment of standing in, in the hallway here and going, can I go through this? Can I do this again? Can I like look at these pictures yeah. of people with their legs blown off? And, and so you, in a way, probably 
England and the United Kingdom probably don't really know exactly what they're feeling right now. I mean, I think that's that, that's right. Um, and, and it takes a while for these things to sink in. Of course, it also takes a while normally for political reaction to sink in. I mean, there's a sort of short term uh, party political calculations. And we've seen both sides of the political spectrum try to subtly, because you have to do it subtly, because otherwise people will turn against you, but subtly exploit the terrorist attack in order to gain votes on Thursday. But there's also the larger, longer term shift over time. And there's some good social science to suggest that the incidence of terrorist attacks does lead to uh, less tolerance, more xenophobia, and so on. And that's not something you see necessarily a week after the attack. You see it a year or five years or 10 years after um, a series of attacks. We're talking to Yasha Munk right now, uh, lectures on uh, government at Harvard, senior fellow at New America, and through New America, the host of a very interesting, fairly new podcast, The Good Fight, if you want to explore some of these ideas in long form. It's a great place to go. Also uh, writes for Slate. Um, so, uh, Yasha, I noticed that you retweeted uh, today a John Favreau observation that closely parallels paralleled my own thoughts uh, as watching even Donald Trump respond to London, but also watching Donald Trump respond kind of to everything. I find myself thinking, you know, we're not going to get out of the Trump era without some kind of even more basic or brutal confrontation about the limits of presidential power, the difference between dissent and sedition. Um, and I'd like to know what you're thinking about that these days. I've heard you in, in, in the past talk about, you know, well, what kind of full-scale attack on American institutions can we uh, anticipate? Is it going to be kind of a slow poison or some kind of big standoff? I don't know about you, but I feel like we're headed for some kind of bi recognizably big standoff, maybe of a kind that we won't recognize from, from any administration that's come before it. Yeah, so the thing that's clearly been happening over the last three months is just a systematic assault on every basic democratic norm and frankly on every norm of political decency from the presidency. Um, you know, to retweet, uh, you know, news from the Drudge Report that is unverified about the number of people who have died, what exactly has happened, um, when you have access to uh, the best intelligence operation in the world, and you simply retweet things you come across on Twitter and potentially um, spread misinformation from on high. It's just so deeply irresponsible. And then, you know, when you think about the United Kingdom being um, the closest ally to the United States um, and the president of the United States just picks a, 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 a needless and useless Twitter fight with the mayor of the biggest city in your closest ally, um, in the hours after a terrorist attack, um, what happened is that uh, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, um, had said there was going to be an increased police presence in the streets over the next days. So that is nothing to worry about. Um, and Donald Trump then attacked him for saying that terrorist attacks are nothing to worry about, which is clearly not what the mayor had said. So when you when you, when you, when you look at those kinds of things, and this is of course not an isolated incident. This is part of a much larger pattern. I do worry about the way in which the office of a president has been debased, but but really in which everything has been politicized, in which there aren't any things that are beyond the pale anymore. When you look at the fact that a GOP congressional candidate body slammed and punched mm -hmm. a reporter, and then the next day was elected to the House of Representatives and embraced by GOP leaders, 
as part of a caucus. Yeah, and that um, that had sort of weird echoes of Corey Lewandowski much earlier in the Trump campaign, uh, also uh, muscling a, a female reporter. And right around that time, there were reports that he was maybe being brought back into the fold uh, to help them with their damage control operations. It's kind of like yeah. this all seems very much of a piece. And, and it does. Yeah, and and but the question for me, so so the assault on norms is taken for granted. I mean, we, we will have to wait and see how much poison that spreads, what the effect of that is going to be. Um, when we see this for four years, how much of our norms, how much of our shared beliefs as Americans we will have left. But what's not yet clear is how much Donald Trump will actually attack institutions through actions as well as words. I think the firing of James Comey in that was by far and away the most significant moment of a presidency so far. It was clearly the moment when he really did try to undermine the independence of state institutions in the kind of way that authoritarian populists have done in Poland and Hungary and Turkey and Russia. Um, but so far, it's remained a relatively isolated incident. So what we should be watching for, because we know that the crazy tweets are going to continue, but what we should be watching for in the next months and years is how much of those kind of actual actions Donald Trump will take. All right. And one way to uh, roll over some of the institutions that surround you is to kind of not really have them. We know that, you know, Donald Trump, to a really kind of shocking degree, hasn't filled a lot of key spots in his in his administration. I think today's number is that eight out of 120 senior State Department positions are confirmed and filled. So, I mean, you don't have to get past the objections of people in the State Department if they're not there. But we also see that he has a tendency to kind of roll over and shock his top cabinet people. Tillerson was uh, Tillerson and others were trying to talk him into staying in the Paris Accords. And Politico today has a story about how Tillerson, McMaster and Mattis were still on the morning of the NATO speech under the impression that Trump was going to use some conciliatory language uh, affirming Article five. Uh, and then he didn't. And and. You know, if in fact he were going to do something kind of abrupt and shocking, he's sort of set the stage for not being interfered with by some of the people who would be capable ordinarily of interfering with him. Yeah. And, and you know, obviously, uh, one of the things that scholars of democratic breakdown has been, have been worrying about is how Donald Trump might act in the moment of a real crisis. There's been plenty of crises over the last three months, but with the exception of the North Korea conflict, they've really been homemade, self-made. Um, but every president is tested at some point in their tenure. Over four years, a lot of things are likely to happen. Uh, and there's real questions about what should happen if the United States really did face a serious threat from an adversary power, or if, God forbid, there were a major terrorist attack on American soil over the next four years. Um, and I see two big dangers here. The first is misinformation and, and lack of trust. In those situations, to avoid panic, people have to have faith that what politicians tell them is true and accurate and measured. How can we assume that based on the liberties that Donald Trump has taken with the truth all along? So that is the first worry I have. But the second worry is that Donald Trump might use a moment like that in order to expand his power, in order to do a lot of radical things that few people would be in a position to or have the guts to oppose under those kinds of circumstances. Um, Yasha, as we uh, get near the end of this conversation, I, I want to also ask you a little bit about how 
I'm trying to think how to phrase this, but but um, we watch what's unfolded on the European stage over the last couple of weeks. And one could argue that what happened at the G7 and the NATO speech and then the exit from the Paris Accords and then this taunting uh, and politicizing uh, of the London attacks seem collectively like a repudiation by Donald Trump of the notion that we're all in this together. Uh, it could be argued in reverse that we were never all in this together. And I know you've written about the fact that Trump, in a way, is a convenient uh, target and scapegoat for some European leaders and for Europeans in general. They can say, look, look at this idiot, uh, you know, typical ugly American, um, and, and, and he's going to be the one kind of dragging us all down. Um, and that's there's certainly a powerful case to be made for that. On the other hand, I find myself thinking, well, that also could allow them a certain amount of breathing room, you know, as they blame everything on Trump. Um, I don't know. Were we ever all in this together, say, in the Obama era? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think Europeans deeply, deeply dislike Trump. And and look, there's good reason to dislike Trump. Um, but I think part of the reason why Europeans actually are kind of happy about Trump in a certain kind of ways, but it makes them look really good. Mm -hmm. um, and they can now say no to reasonable requests in a righteous way, um, even when, when those requests are reasonable. And so, you know, the commitment to NATO is one of those things. Um, there's a huge difference between the George W. Bush administration and the Barack Obama administration on the one side and Donald Trump's administration on the other side. Um, in that the previous generation administrations were crystal clear that they would defend the NATO partners, that they stood by Article 5. But they were also deeply frustrated that European countries were not living up to their defense commitments. They were not spending 2% GDP per capita on the militaries, and that they were free riding on the American effort in many ways. Um, Donald Trump... Um, is also frustrated, but Europeans don't spend more money on the military, and that is perfectly legitimate. The problem is that he is now making the NATO commitment uh, conditional on Europeans spending more money, and that really undermines uh, the deterrent effect that NATO has. So I think he has a very, very irresponsible policy here. But he is right that Europeans should be spending more on their militaries, and Europeans, I think, have a pretty easy way out at the moment because they simply say, well, Donald Trump wants to spend us more on the military. We know that Donald Trump uh, is terrible in all of these ways. So why should we do it? Um, yeah. And similarly, I mean, first of all, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I tend to romanticize Europe as this kind of utopian paradise of socialist democracies, of you know, highly responsible leaders who, who understand the connectedness of, of our national destinies, but also of our global environmental destinies. And I know I was brought up a little short by Andrew Revkin from ProPublica, who was writing over the weekend about the, the Paris exit. And, and he writes, in Europe, while generally basking in the glow of the Paris Agreement, has been quietly lobbying the Trump administration since February to fast-track approvals of multibillion-dollar terminals for exporting, exporting America's abundant shale-drilled natural gas as liquefied nat natural gas, LNG, across the Atlantic. Who's the fossil fuel villain here, writes Andrew. Um, and that's an interesting point, too, that Trump on the environment is such a catastrophic, blustering failure that it may subtract from our ability to look at some of the more subtle questions about what everybody's doing with, with carbon and internal combustion and and stuff like LNG. I, I mean, I think that's right. Um, you know, my sense on the climate front is that actually the, the, the most important thing that everybody should be doing 
is to spend a lot of money on research and development of much cheaper clean energy sources. Um, the best way of transitioning away from a carbon economy is to make the alternatives much cheaper than carbon-based fuel sources. And we've made tremendous progress in terms of a price of solar energy and other renewable energy sources over the last decade or so. And this is something where historically the United States has done much more than Europe. Um, for various reasons, the United States has actually put much more money into long-term research um, into these things that I think is really the most important element to beating the challenge of climate change. And one of the dangers now is that some of that funding will, will dry, dry up in the Trump era. And I think that would in some ways be as dangerous and as tragic as the United States pulling out of a Paris Agreement. All right, Yasha Munk uh, joining us from London via Skype. Uh, people who want to hear more of his kind of deep thinking and his very skilled interviewing should start listening to the Good Fight podcast. It's at New America. It's important to know that, too, because there was some other podcast called The Good Fight. And if you just type those words into Google, you might not get Yasha. Uh, so uh, thanks very much for joining us today, Yasha. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to have more to say about the Paris Accords and particularly how states and municipalities might respond on their own. All right, before we uh, plunge into this segment, I want to say that the final segment of today's show will be one in which you can call up and talk about what you want to talk about. So write the number down on your hand right now, 860-275-7266, but don't call in yet, 860-275-7266. Don't call in because we're about to talk to David Abel, uh, reports on the environment for the Boston Globe, one of the people who started writing uh, over the weekend about um, a possible, well, not a possible, an actual response to the withdrawal from the Paris Accords, and that is uh, both states and cities uh, stepping up to say, well, that isn't necessarily what we intend to do. Uh, we may be able, in our own kind of prorated way, to, uh, to, to formulate our own response and continue to participate, participate in the sentiment of these accords. David Abel, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. And and just, you know, as a reminder, I think people, you know, are kind of absorbing this over the past four or five days in a way that maybe they previously hadn't. But, I mean, the Paris Climate Accord is aspirational or was aspirational more than it was binding in the sense of a typical 20th century treaty, right? This is, uh, in a way, a, a discussion about what our starting points might be as a world. Help people understand how, say, Paris is different from Kyoto. Right. Uh, well, the first thing to understand is that this is the first time that nations around the world, and we're talking about more than 190 countries, came together uh, to pledge reducing their carbon emissions. And by design, uh, in part because of the uh, problems of getting a treaty ratified in the U.S. Senate, it was designed to be a voluntary program, essentially. But uh, it was it, it is aspirational, but it also requires uh, or, or involves uh, pledges on on behalf of countries all over the world who have submitted detailed plans about how they're going to reduce their carbon emissions. In the United States, we pledge to reduce our carbon emissions by uh, at least 26 percent below 2005 levels, and uh, this was uh, this was the the glide path in many ways for us to get uh, to uh, trying to keep the increasing temperatures 
at what scientists say is uh, below catastrophic levels or uh, two degrees Celsius. It, it was a glide path. In terms of what the Obama administration set as a target, is it doable? Is it realistic? Were, were we on path for a safe landing uh, on that glide path uh, to those goals? Well, we had already, uh, before the Paris Accords were signed, uh, reduced our emissions by 12 percent uh, since uh, 2005 or below 2005 levels. Um, so we are certainly uh, uh, heading in that direction, and that's not just uh, as a result of policy, but that's uh, probably a lot to do with the changing economics of the uh, of the energy sector, in which natural gas, uh, which um, releases fewer carbon emissions than coal, has become far more economically uh, feasible uh, as a result of shale fracking, for the most part, and that has led to a decline in the use of coal. So in terms of people objecting to this or, you know, wanting things to be, objecting to withdrawing from the Paris Accords, you don't even have to go to the State House of Massachusetts. I mean, Rex Tillerson, sitting pretty much closer to the president, uh, wanted us to stay in. So did other key administrative uh, administrative officials. And so, David, in a way that I think a lot of people might have found surprising, did an awful lot of major figures in private industry, including people who run companies that one might expect would be much more interested in in some foot dragging uh, about hitting targets for carbon emissions. Um, Why was so much of private industry willing to go where Trump doesn't want to go? Yeah, I mean, ironically, uh, there were a number of coal uh, companies that urged the president to stay in the Paris Accord uh, and uh, and other fossil fuel companies like ExxonMobil. And in some in some respects, what I'd heard, uh, and uh, it is certainly a, a curious, but what I'd heard, one of the explanations for why coal companies were uh, eager to keep the United States in the Paris Accord was in part because there has been, uh, because number one, they see that the writing is on the wall uh, and that the economics uh, have not made sense for some time uh, for uh, coal and are unlikely to in the future, but that... There are potential there are potential future um, uh, possibilities for using something called clean coal, uh, which is uh, something that, for the most part, has not been economically feasible um, to try to reduce or or store carbon emissions that are that come from the burning of coal, and and I think a lot of these companies had hoped that Paris would potentially make investments in that kind of technology greater and and provide some possible future for, for coal. So, uh, David, um, some of the momentum now seems to be coming from both governors and city mayors. Um, and, and one of those governors is uh, Charlie Baker, Republican mayor of, uh, excuse me, one of the Republican governor of Massachusetts. So uh, tell us a little bit about the United States Climate Alliance. So uh, last week, uh, there was an effort uh, that was started by the governors of California, New York, and the state of Washington. And this was seen as kind of a, uh, a response to the president and, uh, and the president's decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord uh, and a symbol, essentially, as far as I 
as far as I understand it, to the rest of the world to say uh, Donald Trump doesn't speak for everyone, and uh, especially st- certain states. And right now, this uh, U- so-called U.S. Climate Alliance has uh, incorporated uh, or received pledges from a number of other states, including uh, Rhode, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, Oregon, Hawaii, and uh, my state, Massachusetts, in addition to California, New York, and Washington. And, uh, and it's unclear, and it's something that in my reporting I'm trying to delve into, uh, what exactly will come of this uh, group and whether it will be something like we have in the Northeast called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is nine states that have something called a cap-and-trade program, which essentially allows them to trade pollution allowances, and and ultimately there's they're declining caps on the amount of carbon emissions from power plants. And and it's unclear exactly what this alliance is going to do, but it's part of a, a growing movement for uh, non-federal responses to uh, to curb carbon emissions. And there's another movement that will be announced today uh, by um, former uh, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, which incorporates cities and universities and states and other groups uh, to make similar kinds of efforts. And at the moment, given uh, the uh, the so- somewhat incipient stage of these uh, these organizations, it's not exactly clear what they'll do and how effective they might be, uh, especially compared to concerted federal action. Right. And Bloomberg is also ponying up some of his own foundation money, uh, offering to do that to operate the U.N. Framework uh, Commission on Climate Change. Um, you know, let's go back to the um, Northeast Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, because I think as you look at that, it's an interesting, I mean, it's not a, a refutation of, of part of President Trump's argument, but it's an interesting response to it in the sense that, you know, you were talking about those reductions since 2005, the national reductions. Well, because of the Greenhouse Gas Initiative, the Northeast has well outperformed the national uh, reductions. And, I mean, part of President Trump's argument is, well, when you do this, you hamstring your economy. It doesn't appear to have done that, right? The, the cap-and-trade system right. and the innovation don't seem to have hurt the economies of these nine states. That's correct. I mean, you know, the the president made all kinds of dubious uh, and misleading statements during his, uh, his speech in the Rose Garden of the White House last week. And uh, one example, uh, you know, he, he discussed uh, the notion that uh, carbon, cutting carbon emissions would be catastrophic for the U.S. economy. And uh, if you look at what's happened in uh, the Northeast, where, uh, where the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative uh, has been in force for nearly a decade now, um, between 2005 and 2015, uh, the program has uh, led the region to reduce power plant pollution by 45% while nationwide the decline was only 20%. And at the same time, the state's economies have grown by an average of 6% compared to uh, 4.1% for the rest of the nation. 
Right. And it, it seems, I mean, I don't have the kind of expertise or background in this that you do, but what I've been saying mainly to myself uh, all weekend and, uh, and a day or so previous to that is that, that first of all, it just kind of makes sense ultimately in, in a bigger, more global sense that the countries uh, and entities that innovate uh, and wean themselves off some of the more carbon-based systems and learn to live uh, off the sun and the wind are going to have economic advantages over entities, whether they're nations or companies or states or whatever, that don't. It just seems inevitable that, you know, if you want to be competitive internationally, um, the worst thing that you could do would be try to to base a lot of your environmental and economic thinking on a 20 or 25-year-old model. Yeah, and it's already happening. I mean, um, we're seeing China essentially take the lead on the production of solar panels and wind turbine technology, and uh, the the prices for both of those have come down to the point that they're now, uh, without any subsidies, competitive with with uh, fossil fuels. And they're, you know, it, that is uh, what I think most people expect the future of energy will be uh, in the coming decades. And uh, it appears that a lot of the uh, research and, and uh, other programs that had been um, supported uh, by the last administration, the Obama administration, are now in jeopardy of being cut. And, um, and we could really be seeding our, um, uh, our technological edge or our research um, uh, it, to, to other countries. We've been talking to David Abel. You should read more of his reporting uh, on the environment for the Boston Globe, although you're going to run out of your uh, free stories pretty fast online. But I may be setting up a cap-and-trade system for that where people can uh, you know, trade their, their free stories on the Boston Globe. David Abel, <laughs> thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. Now it's really time to write down this number on your hand, 860-275-7266. It's been a tumultuous five or six or seven days between the Paris withdrawal and then what happened in London. What are you thinking about right now? Uh, I assume it's like something involving that, but maybe not. 860-275-7266. This is going to have to be fast because I'm in the middle of negotiating my own private trade deal with Colombia. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is secretly installing solar panels at Mar-a-Lago. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Oliver. On tomorrow's show, we look inside the world of homeschooling. And now, back to Colin. That's right. Uh, well, we're going, to, we're going to maybe even explode some of your stereotypes about homeschooling and who homeschools. All right. Uh, we're going to, as they say, open the phone lines. Phone lines are actually always open, but it's something people say. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Let me offer up a, a framework for some of the things that we might be talking about here. I mean, really, the, the, the Trump Twitter account, which we are sometimes encouraged not to pay attention to, um, but is almost irresistible and is probably a clearer indication of where things are going than almost anything else that we could get. Um, in fact, there's now this kind of, this uh, Twitter app which takes the Trump tweets 
and kind of reformats them as official White House statements with the White House kind of stationary logo and the general formatting of a real White House statement. And they do look very dissonant in that context. They don't really seem like anything that could be coming out of the White House. But of course, in the way that Yasha Munk and I were talking about in the first segment, uh, yesterday was shocking in, in the president's willingness to taunt and feud uh, with the mayor of London at a time like this, uh, and also to uh, use the occasion, the, the immediate aftermath of the London terror as, um, as an argument for his own travel ban, and even to bring up the whole issue of gun control and saying, you know, notice it was trucks and knives, uh, not guns. I, one thing that a number of people have pointed out is that one reason it might be like that is because Britain has much tougher gun laws than we do. And post-Dunblane, they came to an even bigger reckoning about, you know, how many guns they want to have around. So that wouldn't necessarily prove any, prove his point anyway, that his point apparently being that guns aren't that big a problem. Well, they're maybe less of a problem in a place that has stronger gun laws. Anyway, uh, so you have these. Uh, and then today he had a tantrum uh, at his own Justice Department and complained. Well, I mean, I've got the tweets right in front of me. Uh, he complained. Uh, he said, uh, the people, the lawyers, the courts can call it whatever they want. I am calling it what we need and what it is, a travel ban. These tweet, th- a tweet like that, by the way, can be and probably will be introduced by lawyers on the other side of this argument, uh, p- particularly if the Justice Department is trying to claim it's not a travel ban. The, ju- the Justice Department, uh, the president tweeted, should have stayed with the original travel ban, not the watered-down politically correct version that they submitted to the Supreme Court. Um, The Justice Department should ask for an expedited hearing of the watered-down travel ban before the Supreme Court and seek a much tougher version. It seems as though almost kind of buoyed by the uh, upsetting news from London, uh, he felt like kind of thumping his chest and not thumping his chest so much at some of his usual targets like the press uh, or the Democratic Party, but at his own Justice Department, <laughs> which is in the process of trying to get his executive order into a state where it can pass muster with the federal courts. So I don't, I barely even know what to make of that. It did, seems very self-sabotaging, but maybe there's some master strategy I'm not seeing. Our number, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. We'll start with Peter in Mansfield. Hi, Peter. Hi, Colin. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that the uh, governor has decided to sign on to this uh, multi-state alliance for renewable energy. Uh, and yet, and, and Connecticut has done some pretty darn good things in this regard. But if you look at Rhode Island and Massachusetts and Vermont, and let alone New York, uh, Connecticut has not done as much as it should have um, in the past years. And I hope that we, we're a little more aggressive. You know, Connecticut should have a shared solar program where you can have a big solar array and subscribers who uh, are renters or live in shaded homes uh, can buy uh, um, uh, solar power. All those other states have that. We don't. Uh, We should have a virtual net metering program that's much more robust. We have a small one where uh, if you live in a town, the town, some towns can build a big solar array and uh, get their town buildings credited for the output of that solar array. But that program is totally filled up. There are 25 towns that are participating, and uh, we have 169 towns and cities. And uh, the state is not moving forward on that. 
And then there's things like uh, the Lead by Example program, where uh, state buildings uh, should be, will save money. They'll save money if there's more energy efficiency uh, built into the, you know, added to buildings and uh, at heat pumps and things like that. And the state is doing almost nothing on that regard. So, State good, cars also, state, so yeah, state vehicles are a great way to lead by example, too. Those are great points, Peter, and you clearly have gone to school on all this stuff. I, I guess the, the sad part of this is that to whatever extent this would require um, some approval, backing, or funding by the larger political apparatus here in the state. I mean, the General Assembly seems absolutely stalled, not a- able to do even the most basic kinds of things, things that it kind of has to do to keep the state running. So these other, you know, ideas that I think are great would probably fall into the aspirational level. Good luck <laughs> getting them to do anything. We're going to be talking about that Wednesday uh, on the wheelhouse at 9 a.m. All right, so here's Matt in Avon. Hi, Matt. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you doing? Um, just, you know, I don't know whether I have um, anxiety about all the headlines Trump grabs on a daily basis, but... I, I think I have some upcoming on Thursday with Comey, the whole trial day. It's just inevitable that he is going to try and grab more uh, headlines. Any guesses as to what he could potentially do uh, to grab more, to steer more attention away from the whole trial on Thursday? It's just inevitable, though. I think the hard lesson uh, of the last, what, 18 months to two years is that it's it, nobody's mind works the way this man's mind works. So in terms of, I mean, I think that you're right, that he enjoys creating news that makes us focus on that news as opposed to news that he's less fond of. But I mean, it it, it doesn't even have that ra- rational a path. Like if you look at the, the tantrum that he had today at his own Justice Department, it's hard to see how that's anything but self-sabotaging, how that could be part of a strategy that would advance his cause in some other way. So either he's able to think about this at a kind of Boris Spassky three-level chess master you know, uh, level, or he's just kind of crazy and occasionally effective at doing that. I wouldn't dream of trying to guess what things he might be trying to pull out of his pocket uh, in between now and Thursday when Comey's testimony uh, time comes. And, you know, I mean, it's just as likely, Matt, I think, to be some kind of head on collision on Twitter with Comey. In other words, just going after Comey in a very direct way instead of diverting attention towards something else. He's just as likely to kind of flip out and and kind of go after uh, Comey in a very direct and maybe even personal way. Uh, We are trying to figure out Thursday. I mean, you know, at a station like this one, we're constantly, I mean, one thing that has happened in this era is that we have to kind of figure out what Thursday, what a day like Thursday is going to be like. And, you know, can we do this show on Thursday? Will it be possible for us to go on the air with the show that we plan? Should we not do that show and do some other show? Should we go to full NPR coverage of the hearings? When will that coverage end? We're, we're in a new era for all that stuff. But uh, believe me, today in the building now, we're trying to figure out uh, what happens Thursday. And that's kind of ludicrous considering the fact that Tuesday and Wednesday are still to come in this very event-filled time. Uh, Kathy from Durham, you're probably going to be the last caller of the day. What have you got to say to us? Yes, thanks for taking my call. First, thanks to the uh, the mainstream media, you, uh, NPR, and uh, some of the other stations that are continuing to cover this story. My last um, my comment is uh, I'm just so concerned about the way he pulled out of the climate agreement uh, if you read E.J. Dayon uh, in the Washington Post, I think it was today or yesterday, the, uh, he basically 
talked about being demeaned. He lied about all of the reasons why he was pulling out. He said that people were laughing at us. So is he lying through his teeth, or is he believing other people who are lying uh, and you know, misinterpreting information for him because they know he doesn't know any better? Either way, there's a problem with this man, and he's getting more and more paranoid. He's crumbling around the edges. He is mentally ill. You referred to it earlier. I think what the mainstream media needs to do now is to focus on the members of Congress who are not supposed to be mentally ill. Why aren't they policing this man? Why aren't we talking? Whether he did or did not do what he did in Russia, he's pulling the country apart already. They need to start thinking about getting this man, you know, evaluated medically. I speak this as a doctor, by the way. I mean, I've had a, it's the last straw with this. Right. We'll see. You probably know about the Yale conference where they kind of went there uh, in a way that the so-called Goldwater rule uh, encourages uh, clinicians not to go there in terms of evaluating the mental health of a public figure whom they have not actually had any direct contact with as a patient. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, it, there, I guess what I would say is that a lot of different people on a lot of different fronts and not exclusively people from the opposition party anymore, clearly, are attempting to formulate responses. But you have to do you have to have responses where you bring a sufficient percentage of the American public along with you, including a sufficient percentage of the people who voted for Donald Trump in the first place. You can't in the teeth of complete resistance from those Americans who voted for this guy. There's things that you it's just much more difficult to do. I keep saying this, but I mean, just to use the I word, there are just as an example, there are effectively two impeachments in America. There's the impeachment where the opposition party is the same uh, excuse me, where the opposition party is in control uh, of the two chambers of Congress. And, and then there are the, there's the impeachment where uh, the president and the control of the Congress are in the same party hands. That's the situation. That latter situation is the one that we have right now. It's a very different kind of impeachment. Anyway, we have to stop right there. Thanks to everybody who helped out, especially uh, Betsy Kaplan, who over the weekend pulled together this terrific show. We have a very interesting guest coming up. We don't usually pre-plan. Actually, I won't even talk about it. We don't usually pre-plan the scramble, but we'll have a very interesting guest for you, someone who can kind of see the future, maybe. 